Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. One of the most uh, controversial and famous movies of the 60s, really of all time, is this Somewhat tawdry film called The Graduate. Somebody's seen The Graduate here. It's a famous film. Um, and if you've seen it, you're like, Pastor Brian, you're mentioning it in a sermon, really? And uh, just stick with me, right? Because I can't recommend it to you. Like, I'm not telling you to go watch it. You probably shouldn't go watch it. But it's one of these, like, top 10 films of all time kind of movies. And so I felt it was an okay reference point to jump off of this morning. And, um, One of the reasons why it was so popular is because it sort of captured a a moment in the 60s that many people experienced. Um, Many Americans were overwhelmed with this sense of post-war prosperity. You know, everyone was going to college, uh, backyard pools, suburbia was big. There's a lot of wealth going around. Um, But behind the scenes, for many people, they experienced uh, things like uh, boozy affairs and desperate housewives and um, resentful children and, and a lot of alcohol. And, and so this movie sort of captured some of that and put it on film and everyone got really excited about it and said, okay, I understand what that's about. And that may not have been your experience if you were alive in the 60s, but for many it was. And it was uh, part of the reason why The Graduate remains so popular. And I won't spoil the whole film for you, but one thing that's famous about the film is its ending because its ending is not very happy. Um, what happens is Benjamin um, has invaded and interrupted the, the wedding of his beloved Elaine. She's about to get somebody married to somebody who she doesn't love because her father wants her to. And so Ben comes and bangs on the uh, glass windows of the back of the church shouting, Elaine, Elaine, and Elaine sees him and shouts Ben and runs to him. And, and the whole wedding just erupts in a, a massive uproar. Men in suits jump the fiancé gets angry and rushes towards Ben. If There's chaos in the sanctuary. And then Ben, funnily enough, he grabs a procession cross. He grabs a cross, and it's one of these crosses on a stick, and he starts waving it at people. And it's a really funny scene for a pastor to watch. Uh, but he eventually gets Elaine out of the church, and they close the front doors of the church, and they use the cross to barricade it and latch it shut, and they run off to a bus, and they get on the bus, and She's in her wedding best on the bus and they start to laugh and they flop in the back seat and everyone on the bus is looking at them like they're crazy, but she's in a wedding dress laughing and, and he's laughing, but as the, the movie draws to a close, their laughter begins to fade away. And of all the songs to play over what could have been a very romantic and fun scene, Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence begins to play, right? Hello darkness, my old friend. Right, that's a downer of a song for a happy ending of a movie. And what the movie says is that these two lovebirds have chosen a life different than their parents, different than their families, but they don't know what the future is going to bring. Um, that it's not a scary, it's a scary thing to leave the world behind that you knew and to reject it, but to not know the world in front of you. 
And so you'd think they'd be laughing on the bus and giddy, newly in love, fresh, committed to each other, um, saving Elaine from a boring, desperate housewife's marriage. But instead, they don't make eye contact and they look at the floor and they, they, they don't hold hands or kiss. They just sort of sit next to each other, pondering the seriousness of what they've done because, yeah, they've made an escape, but the question for them is, what's next? What is next? Because, yeah, they've left their old life behind, but they certainly don't know about life ahead. What is next? And the movie doesn't answer it. The, the bus drives off, it fades to black, and then the credits roll. Um, that's the ending of this movie. Now, rewind about 3,000 years to the eastern coast of the Red Sea on the Sinai Peninsula. Because there's another great escape that has taken place. Another great escape. You see, um, God has raised up Moses to free his people from Israel. And you, maybe you're familiar with the story, right? Let my people go, says Moses uh, on God's behalf to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, no. And there's plagues. The Nile turns to blood, hail and frogs and bugs. And, and, and all of these things happen. And then the big culmination of the great escape of Israel is that God parts the Red Sea. He literally creates dry land in the middle of the Red Sea. The people of Israel go down and up and emerge on the other side. And as Pharaoh's army chases them through, the waters close on Pharaoh's army, drowning them in the Red Sea. And so now the people of God have escaped slavery. They are free from Egypt. Pharaoh is no longer their ruler, God is. And they're singing and they're dancing, they're parting, they've got the tambourines. But what's next? <laughs> but what's next? Because after the partying ends, and after they realize that they've escaped and left this world of slavery behind, they're looking ahead going, hold on, uh, where's the water to drink? There's no Nile River here. Where's the place to take our herds and let them graze? There's no good place to graze here. This is like a desert. Like, what are we, what are we gonna do in this place, um, right? Um, now that we've left our sort of homes back there, where are we going to live? What are we going to do? This is nomad country. This is camels and tents and um, oasis country. But did anybody remember to bring a map? Where are we? What are we doing on this side of the sea? What's going to happen to these people now that they've left Egypt? They've experienced the saving work of God, but the credits haven't started to roll. There's, there's going to continue the story. And that's where we're going to kick off our new sermon series this fall. Um, this sermon series on what happens after the Exodus. I'm tentatively titling it Prone to Wander. Um, because for the next uh, generation or so, Israel is going to have to go through a transformation process from being slaves in Egypt to being the people of God in the Promised Land. And this sort of overlooked passage of the Bible, this overlooked section of the Bible, contains so much wisdom about the human nature and the mercy of God and um, even the nature of people who've been saved by God. There's a lot here about human anthropology, as it were, alongside the saving work of God that, are gonna, that will hopefully illumine not just our own time and our own space, but our own walk with God in the process. And so what's next for God's people after they've been saved? That's where we're going to spend some time in the weeks and months to come. Uh, in fact, today it starts off, we get a glimpse of some very important themes that we're going to talk about over the weeks and months to come. Uh, and this, um, this theme that we're talking about involves the fickleness 
of Israel and the mercy of God. Um, That's one of the great themes we're going to explore together over the weeks and months to come because um, when we find immediately after they've come across the Red Sea on the other side, they've got about three days before things start to, to turn south. And our reading begins like this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They spent three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So three days into this new life, this new redeemed life, Israel hits a snag. Israel has crossed the Red Sea into a functional desert. There's no water, and they're looking for water. And after three days, right, all of their sort of water supplies have run dry, right? They're going to have water sacks and jars and things like that that they're moving with them. But the water they find in this place called Mara is undrinkable. The Hebrew word Mara does indeed mean bitter. And smarty pants scholars, they're not quite sure what it is about this that's making it bitter, right? On the one hand, there could just be some minerals in this watering hole that make it undrinkable. And it's like, I can't drink this. It's too bitter. On the other hand, there's some who say, Um, that this is like a stagnant water and bitter is just a way of saying that it's dangerous and there's bacteria in this water and it'll make you sick. It's not safe water to drink. It hasn't been purified. It's not running. And so when you look at this bitter water, you have Israel um, who has been, again, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people who have just left Egypt and they're wandering as nomads in the desert and they're desperate for water. They finally find some and it's undrinkable. I mean, you can imagine that there'd be some disappointment. You can imagine there'd be some frustration. Um, but what happens is the people channel that disappointment and that frustration against God and against Moses, his appointed leader. What happens next? And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Um, get used to this word grumbled. It's going to happen and pop up a lot. In fact, in the books of Exodus and Numbers, um, we got 14 times, 14 times, where the people are going to grumble against Moses and they're going to grumble against God and say things, mean and nasty things in frustration and anger. And they're going to say, all right, um, you led us here. Um, did you lead us out here in the wilderness to die? Like, come on, like we need some water. This is getting scary and our lives are on the line. In fact, uh, grumbling is something that happens pretty frequently. You'll notice in the New Testament, reading our gospel reading today, Um, that part of the the hallmark of Jesus's ministry is that the hoity-toity religious people of Jesus's day were grumbling against him, right? Um, That Jesus is extending mercy to tax collectors and sinners, and and off to the side, there's this group giving him the side eye saying, can you believe he's doing that? Like, what gives him the right? Can you believe that? In the same way there are people saying about Moses, can you believe that? He let us out here. He didn't have a plan. Now we're going to die of thirst in the desert. Can you believe that? So grumbling is one of the themes that we're going to go through. And it really only took, what, three days, right? Three days on the other side of um, the the exodus, the other side of this great, wonderful, redemptive moment. Three days later, people are starting to to grumble. Maybe you've felt that way in your own lives. Um, Maybe you've had this incredible experience with God. Maybe um, you've experienced some real hardship in your life, and you start to give God the side eye and say, all right, God, come on, right? Um, maybe you've had your own grumbling moment. And I've known people who've had these sort of miraculous healings where their bodies were healed in ways that science um, could not explain. I know people who have had long shot 
prayers answered. I know people who went to this conference and had this sort of mountaintop experience. That's a Christianese word for this sort of thing, right? Christians talk about mountaintop experiences. They went to a conference and they want to come back and talk about how their lives were changed from this mountaintop experience. And we might consider the parting of the Red Sea to be that kind of uh, direct revelation of God's love and mercy and saving work, right? Uh, that they've seen a, a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-multi-generation saving work of God. And it, it, it lasted them for about three days. <laughs> it lasted them for maybe three days. Um, it doesn't say a lot about the human condition or the human heart, that something as beautiful and wonderful as being saved up from Egypt, um, that it only lasts a little bit. It's, it's temporary. And the needs of the day can be just as important and meaningful as the great big things. Yeah, we need to be freed from uh, slavery in Egypt, but also like we need water to survive in a desert. Um, and this grumbling is a sign that they do not trust that the God who could part the Red Sea could also provide water for them as well. God can part the water, but can he find the water is really the general grouch, grouchiness that we see on display. However, God does not seem surprised because when Moses prays about the issue and asks God for insight, God gives him a solution. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Again, the, we're not sure whether this is sort of a mystery or a miracle here, right? We're not sure if this water just tastes really bad, and there's a piece of wood, a species of wood nearby that can make it taste better, or whether or not there's a miraculous thing where we throw water in and God makes a miracle, and the dangerous, undrinkable water becomes potable. We're not sure which one it is, but either way, um, a good thing God provides for his people, and he brings them the water that they need. Um, so God makes it clear, hey, um, you're going to have some needs in the desert. You're going to have some needs, and I'm going to take care of all of them for you. In fact, we'll find that to be true in the weeks to come. In fact, God says, I'm going to provide them for you, and here's an example of how I'm going to provide it for you. And we're going to use this water in the bitter water, this, this wood in the bitter water, as a, a, a bit of a test. We're going to do a little test here um, to, to figure out whether or not you guys are going to trust me to get you through all this. And here's how our reading concludes. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." for I am the Lord, your healer. Interesting that God identifies himself as a healer here, right? Because he's, he's concerned about bodies. He's concerned about their bodies and providing clean, fresh water so that they can survive. And it brings back to mind, right? I will bring none of the plagues on you that I brought on Egypt about the Nile turning to blood and how that would make the entire fresh water, um, water source of an entire civilization completely undrinkable. It would make it completely undrinkable. And God says, hey, if you, can, if you stick with me, if you can trust me, if you can do what I tell you, if you can keep my commandments and my statutes, you're not going to be like Egypt. You will always have clean water. I will be there to provide for you. And this little test, right, becomes a pattern for the time that we're going to study ahead, right? God says to Israel, follow my lead, do what I tell you, I'll take care of everything, but the more that God sort of intervenes and provides the things, the more the people of Israel seem to do what? They grumble. 
this pattern of Israel being resentful and angry and fearful and God trying to be merciful into the mix, that's going to be the pattern we're going to see in the weeks ahead. That as the old hymn says, they are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Lord, they feel it. Uh, as they do life under God's providence and care. We're going to continue to look at that pattern for the weeks ahead and maybe even dare to dream that we might be grumbly sometimes too underneath the Lord's provision. But for now, in the meantime, what we see in our passage today is a God of grace, a God of mercy. Because God is not just bringing them out of Israel and sort of cutting to the credits. <laughs> He's not just letting it, letting it roll. This is not a Hollywood ending. Um, we've got more work to do. God has more work to do with the people of Israel now that they've been freed from slavery. The Exodus is a fantastic miracle, but God doesn't end there. People are going to see fire and smoke, pillars of fire and smoke leading them as God leaves them from place to place. God's going to provide water and food and meat for people who are learning, who are like nomads in the desert. God's going to defeat foreign armies. God's going to squash internal rebellions. God is very interested in making sure that his people will find a new home and not just leave the old home behind. All of this for a people who grumble. And that's the nature of God's mercy. And so the recipe for God's mercy, friends, as we see in our reading, as we'll continue to see over and over again, is fickle followers and a gracious God. That's the story of Exodus and Numbers, where we're going to head, the wandering in the wilderness, life after the Exodus. And you know what? In some sense, it's our story as well, that we are indeed a repentant and fickle people who turn to God and find not the, the not an angry, judgmental God who's going to give us the lashes, but instead we find a God who rolls his eyes in love and gives us his mercy once again. By the time we're exploring scripture, particularly this scripture, I think we'll find this to be the reflection of all of this. Because unlike the graduate, where Benjamin and Elaine run off into the bus into an unknowing future, uh, instead we are given the future ourselves. And even though this season of wandering in our own lives until we find our promised land at home will be filled with its own challenges and pitfalls, we'll see that God was there for Israel and God will be there for us too. Come with me. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a Pennsylvania.